is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. Oh, the good old hockey game is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. Hello, Nailers fans, and welcome into another episode of The Toolbox. I'm your host, DJ Abicella. This is a big show filled with lots of terrific information. We'll start it out with our news and notes. The Nailers announced their preseason schedule for the upcoming year. A little bit of a different twist than previous seasons with a new opponent on the docket. We'll talk about the first two signings by the Nailers of this offseason, plus a big signing by Wilkes-Barre Scranton, which could filter down to some terrific help for the Nailers. Plus, there's some news on some former nailers and I have a really fun interview for you with a 14-year pro goaltender Mike McKenna who has also dabbled into some work with the NHL. First things first is news and I know that the player signings are your favorite parts of the news so let's jump right in. The Nailers announced their first two signings of the 2019 offseason. The first one, a very popular one, had some great success here in Wheeling last season, is goaltender Jordan Ruby. He came to the team in early December when the goaltending picture was still uncertain. You had John Muse who at the time was up in Wilkes-Barre Scranton. Matt O'Connor suffered an injury at the end of November so he was still working his way back into the lineup and there was also Danny Taroni who had his ups and downs before ultimately latching on with the Manchester Monarchs. Ruby came in, started real strong in that middle of December stretch when the Nailers ended up going 3-0-1 in the middle of December and then went on to Norfolk and swept that three-game set down in Virginia. But after that, had to sit back a little bit. Muse came back, O'Connor returned to the lineup. At the end of the day though, he bided his time, Jordan did, and ended up leading the team with 12 wins and really was a big force in helping the Nailers try and make that second half push. Unfortunately, as we all know, fell just a little bit short of the postseason, but still a very good performance in goal this year by Jordan Ruby, and the Nailers are thrilled to have him back in the fold again going into the upcoming year. Between the ECHL and the SPHL, this was almost a career year for Ruby. He's coming off of 20 wins, which was too shy of his pro career high in North America and he did set a career high in games played with 39. With the Ruby signing, at the same time, Wilkes-Barre Scranton also added a goaltender that same day in Dustin Tokarski, and Tokarski very familiar with the new head coach of the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins, Mike Vellucci, as Tokarski went 12-0 during regular season and postseason play last season with the ultimate Calder Cup champion Charlotte Checkers and this is crazy because I remember when he first came into pro hockey he's already a 10-year veteran but he's only 29 years old is Tokarski. He's played in 34 NHL games. This will be his seventh NHL organization. He knows his role well, so I think he's going to fit in very nicely with Wilkes-Barre Scranton, who now has, between Pittsburgh, Wilkes-Barre Scranton, and Wheeling, six goaltenders, or really seven goaltenders in the system, six under NHL or AHL contract with Matt Murray and Casey DeSmith up top. And then you have Tristan Jari still kicking around, not sure what his future 
future holds Dustin Tokarski, Emil Larmy, and Alex Dorio. So goaltending has really started to solidify itself. I'll talk more about some of the other positions as we go along on this week's program. But the second signing of the summer for the Nailers was forward Lucas Coles, and I always enjoy seeing how these players come together where you'll get a guy towards the end of the season, he gets that exposure to the league, learns about it, has some good success, and I think that really gives them a great jump start in their first full season as a pro. So that's what I'm looking for in Lucas this year. As he came in at the end of last year, he got into five games. What a debut, though. Remember that one. It was the second-to-last week of the season, a Friday night game against the Fort Wayne Comets. Naylor's trailed that one 4-1, to one, but then scored four goals in a span of four minutes and 22 seconds. His goal ended up being the tying goal, made it 4-4, and then the Naylor scored shortly after that to take the lead. He had an assist in another game, so he had two points in five games. That's a pretty good start. He played Division three college hockey at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. He ended up with a career year as a senior, 24 points in 28 games, led his team in scoring as well. So really looking forward to seeing Lucas, and he has some good size to him too, in addition to that skill. And head coach Mike Bavis, you saw the quote in the press release talking about also a very good skater, and we know how important skating is in today's game at all the levels of pro hockey, heck, all levels of hockey in general couple of signings by Wilkes-Barre Scranton as well to keep you abreast on and these are two players who very well may make their way here to Wheeling this season. First off they signed forward Christopher Brown Christopher played three AHL games with Wilkes-Barre Scranton at the end of the year had one assist during that time he comes as a pro out of Boston College. 16 points as a senior. His best year was a sophomore had 26 points and he's a former NHL draft pick selected in the 6th round of 2000 14 by the Buffalo Sabres so we'll see where Brown falls in the depth chart and whether we'll see him full time with the Nailers or not and then another one and boy not only are we glad to see this guy leave a division rival and come to this organization but if he gets some regular time in the Nailers lineup oh my goodness what a pickup this is Miles Powell had 31 goals 35 assists and 66 points in 57 games. Oh, by the way, was a plus 45 rating with the Cincinnati Cyclones as a rookie. Led all ECHL rookies in goals. 31 goals. If that gets injected into the Wheeling lineup, wow. You talk about a pickup. So a really nice signing by the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins. Again, going into his second pro season, he comes out of RIT from his college hockey days. One of the recent themes and Brown falls into this category in the Penguins organization is lots of rookies and with his signing that puts it to 13 rookies either on NHL or AHL deals. You have Almari, Almeida, Bellarive, Berger, Bjorkquist, Brown, Dorio, Draws, Hawkins, Kim, Lizotte, Lucini, and Palve. So we'll see if all 13 of those are ready to turn pro. Bellarive, Almeida, and Draws as well as Dorio are all 20-year-olds. Bjorkquist still has his senior year of college. That's if he decides to go back or forego it and turn pro. And of course, Palve coming over towards North America for the first time in his career. But kind of seems like that's the goal is to go young and kind of see good example of this Renars Krastenbergs. Bring him in as a young rookie. See if they have the potential to create a future for themselves in the organization. For Krastenbergs, ultimately, does he have what it takes to get to the American Hockey League? We're going to find that out this year and see if he can potentially 
have a position where he will stick at that next level or whether he will spend a lot more time in Wheeling. We saw it also with Adam Krause in the summer of 2016 when he came back for a second year in the organization. Now, with that being said, you also do see a tendency to move on relatively quickly. And I know it does come to a bummer to some fans because there have been some really high impact forwards who come here and succeed on AHL contracts, but when the organization looks at it and, well, they'll succeed in the ECHL, but do they have that ability to be a full-time player in the AHL? And if not, they're ready. The game is getting younger to try and go young, young, young with the new players coming in year after year. So, unfortunately, you do see guys like John McCarron, Ty Loney, Christian Hilbrick, Reed Gardner, who have all been dynamite rookies here in Wheeling, move on to other clubs the following season. So, ultimately, you look at it as the organization as a whole, what their goals are. They're trying to find who will be the next. You look at some undrafted players who have worked their way up on some smaller contracts. Carter Rowney, Connor Sheary, Zach Aston Reese, and then also some drafted players trying to develop those guys. Brian Russ, Tom Kunakel, Jake Gensel coming through the system and making a big impact on their way up. So that's a look from a transaction standpoint of what's going on throughout the organization. A couple of transactions from outside the organization. Former Naylor Josh Archibald, who was with the Arizona Coyotes this past year, had 12 goals and 22 points in 68 games. He actually has the fifth most goals for a former Naylor who has graduated to the National Hockey League. He's a 2017 Stanley Cup champion with the Penguins. He will be playing with the Edmonton Oilers this coming season and also want to congratulate a former Thunderbird and Naylor in Terry Virtue who was just named the head coach of Shrewsbury High School's hockey team. Shrewsbury's in Massachusetts. It's located just outside of Worcester. One other element on our news update today. You saw it earlier this week, the announcement of the 2019 preseason schedule. I know it probably surprised a lot of people after five straight seasons and eight of the last nine facing off against Cincinnati in preseason. We changed things up this year. It will be a two-game series against the Fort Wayne Comets. It will be here in Wheeling at West Banco Arena on Friday, October 4th at 7.05 and then at Allen County War Memorial Coliseum Saturday, October 5th at 7 35. This is the second time the Nailers and Comets will play a preseason series. The previous was in 2013. The Nailers played four preseason games that year, the most since I've been here. And they also had Elmira and Redding in that set. Uh, Fort Wayne won both of those games 4-3 to three here and 6-2 to two there, but that was ultimately a team that went on to the second round of the Kelly Cup playoffs. That was the Wheeling team that had their first ever four-game sweep, a victory of a four-game sweep, when they took out the South Carolina Stingrays in the opening round, a series that featured some unreal goaltending from Mike Condon, plus an overtime goal from Tom Kunakel, a Christian Manella goal, and a one nothing game. A lot of good memories from that 13-14 team who I feel was pretty much on par talent-wise with the team that went to the finals, just didn't quite have the puzzle pieces lock into place the way that the team in 15-16 did, where 13-14 had some injuries. Cody Sylvester got hurt going into the playoffs. Zach Torquato, same thing. Denver Manderson got hurt during the second round against Greenville. Didn't get everybody down from Wilkes-Barre, Scranton. If they had got past Greenville that year, they definitely could have given Cincinnati one heck of a run in the Eastern Conference Final. 
Looking ahead, we have more player signings coming up for you in the coming weeks. I'm finishing up a couple of them as we speak, so you will see those very soon. I know one of our upcoming players is doing a nice video, and we will introduce him with his video. Season members, you'll be getting an invite to sign your contracts for the upcoming season on signing day, which is August 6th. Hey, and you know what? If you haven't signed on yet, it's not too late to become a season member. And if you can't make it to all, to all 36 games, we have half season and big six plans available too. So be sure to check out our table at the Italian Festival, Celebrate Youth, all the community events, or simply check out our website, wheelingnailers.com. This week's guest on the Toolbox is a longtime friend of mine, dating back to when he played with the AHL's Portland Pirates in the 2007-2008 season. He's been in professional hockey as a player for 14 years, and most recently he's been on NHL.com, NHL Network, talking about other things along with the Stanley Cup playoffs. It's goaltender Mike McKenna. Mike, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out of your day. I'm sure that life now that the season is over, you bounced around a lot, is starting to get a little bit more, I guess, normal now that you get a chance to be with your family a lot more. Yeah, you nailed it, DJ. It was a wild year. I never expected at 35 years old, ended up at 36 at the end of the season to go through five different jerseys. That was completely unexpected. Uh, when I signed with Ottawa, the plan was that, hey, we need you to be in Belleville and help out our young guys and mentor them. And then the next thing I know, I found myself in the NHL for a couple months with them and keeping my head above water and then traded and claimed and sent down and conditioning stints and it was a long season. Uh, I ended up away from my family for about four months where they were in basically hockey purgatory in Belleville, Ontario, while I was being shipped all over the place. So it was uh, it was interesting, but it was also really nice to spend the better part of the almost you know two quarters or two, you know, two thirds or three quarters of the season I guess I spent in the NHL. So that was really nice and gratifying. Fourteen years into a career to get that opportunity. How did things change for you as you went along in your career where you got married and you had children? So did it kind of change how you would approach going to different teams or just living the lifestyle as a whole? Well, I think that this year, uh, more than any other, it really did because my daughter was going to be in kindergarten. You know, previous to this season, we could kind of move around and do whatever we needed to pretty easily because it was a fluid situation. The year before that in Texas, we had a really great setup in Austin where my daughter's preschool was essentially across the street from where we live, which was great. But it's preschool. You know, it's two days a week to start. We got her in by the end of the year. It was five days a week. Uh, but nothing strenuous or, or actually scholastic to the extent of what kindergarten is. So going into this season, uh, I wasn't going to sign with anybody who I didn't feel was a good setup for my family. That was first and foremost for me. Um, and with Ottawa, I was assured going in that, yep, it's a, it'll be a great scenario for your family. We'll, you know, we'll introduce you to our guy in the city that can help you find housing and find a place for them to go to school. And we found that for a month, and then everything went sideways. So um, it was a, uh, it was a bit of a surprise. And then being traded was an even bigger surprise. Which, given the conversations that we had at the start of the season and in the summer and uh, in, in the interview period leading up to free agency, I would have never expected that, especially considering that I was you know, doing better than they even expected by playing in the NHL. So it just shows you that, you know, you can never be too comfortable in this game because anything can happen, and, uh, and oftentimes it does. I want to talk about free agency later on in this interview today, but starting with 
how you get involved with the communities that you're in. And even though you've been around of a lot of them, I feel like you really do a great job of getting to engage with the fans quickly, whether it's going out doing community events, being a voice of the team on local radio and television shows. And now we've seen it at a whole different level where you've started to your own podcast, and that's done an incredible job of promoting the sport. You have your in-game Twitter that goes on. Where did you get the ideas to kind of start exploring these platforms on the digital side of things well i guess it was man what really got me to do the digital stuff was watching indycar and indycar drivers racing take to the medium really early like we're talking 2008 i guess 2009 maybe before anybody else was and i was a big fan of that i still am of that series and they were leveraging this stuff and i'm watching all these things happen in real time this fire hose information and the drivers are interacting with fans they're building fan bases Fans are seeing them as human beings, and I don't know, I was just drawn to it right off the bat. I thought it was really cool. Uh, I, was, I was a little apprehensive at first, but then once I got going on it, um, it just it was a lot of fun. And I think the community stuff was just part of that, that I, I enjoy interacting with people. It's as easy as that. I always thought that if I was going to be privileged enough to play hockey in a city, I might as well try to do my best to be part of the community, to help the community in any way possible. And I enjoyed that. And, you know, as you get older, that starts to, to change a little bit. Not your will or desire to do that, but you have commitments when you have kids, you know. And when you're 35, um, you've got to shuttle them around to do things. And, you know, that, it's a little bit of a regret when I got older that I couldn't do more of it. But, man, especially when I was younger, those were great experiences. And they gave back to us as much as we gave to them. Some of these kids that that you meet when you're six, seven, they're six, seven, eight years old, they come back, and now I'm meet, these kids are coming back to me on social media 10 years later saying that, hey, I met you here and here, and I've been a goalie, and there's nothing more gratifying than that. Where do you see hockey in terms of where it is for in the community, in its engagement with fans? Like, I know the NBA is typically the one sport that really tends to get a lot of attention. LeBron James is on Twitter. NFL, I just saw Tom Brady had a tweet that went viral the other day. Where's hockey, and is there somewhere that it needs to go even beyond where it is now? Well, unfortunately, hockey's really lagging in what we do on social media. And it's, it's unfortunate because that's really what's driving the boat in terms of exposure. And I feel like the sport hasn't truly leveraged what we have. We have amazing people in our sport. If you ask anybody in media, they always come back with the first answer, saying hockey players are the best to work with, the easiest, the most humble. Um, and that's part of the problem, though, I think, is this inherent humbleness of hockey players is that nobody wants to rock the boat. Nobody wants to be that guy out on Twitter because teams might think that you're selfish or you're ego-driven. And, and you see that with, like, P.K. Subban is the perfect example of somebody in hockey who's done an amazing job with his social media. He's an, he is a fantastic hockey player. Yet there's this perception that he's the selfish guy, that he's only driven by his own... Uh, his own ego and it's just not the case but that seems to be in hockey for some reason people think this and we've got to shake that perception we need more guys to openly you know use this stuff engage fans just talk to them you know you don't have to respond to everything but here and there those little things go a long way in building a rapport with the community so you have the podcast, Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. You went to St. Lawrence for economics. This isn't quite economics, so what was it like for you to kind of learn how to do all this stuff and go almost on the other side of the equation and be that media type? 
Well, DJ, I think it all just goes back to being on the big jab in Portland, Maine, together <laughs> with you back in the day, you know, when we did it once a week. <laughs> we went on, what was it, every Friday morning, maybe, I think, for an hour. I can't remember what day it was. But uh, I, honestly, the broadcasting side of it is something that I've always been drawn to. I never expected to have an NHL career, much less a pro career. I wanted to be Darren Pang as an analyst as much as I wanted to be Curtis Joseph in net. You know, those things were two separate dreams that I've had that are almost equal. And so I've been trying to build to this moment as much as I can over my career to do things in media. Uh, it's tough when you're playing to get, gather these things, but uh, St. Lawrence did not offer communications in any way. So uh, the best I could do there was host a weekly radio show, which I did for two hours every Monday night. And I did that for two years, so it gave me a little bit of knowledge on how to work the boards and conduct some interviews and play music over the air and that stuff. And as I play, um, you know, I tried to do some of those things with media hits and all that. But, um, yeah, it's, that's kind of how it came about. And the podcast is really just a selfish endeavor of me wanting to be able to talk to my heroes and friends and document it and and have those things live on forever because that's that's what things do in the, in the digital medium is they don't have a lifespan to them. And so that's what Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, my intentions for it. And been really fortunate to have some amazing guests so far. I know you had your childhood idol, Greg Millen, on there. Do you have any other dream guests that you're looking to get on further down the road? Well, I'm working on a couple right now. i got to tell you, it was really amazing to get in touch with Glenn Hall. And this is a guy who's truly one of the last of his generation. And you talk to people who have played the game at a goaltending position from that era, 50s, 60s, early 70s. It was so different. And it was so different in the 70s and 80s than it is today, but... Those guys had so much courage to play the position without a mask. The macho factor was through the roof. Uh, you had coaches just wouldn't allow guys to wear masks because that was, you know, you weren't a man if you did that. The things that those guys went through to earn a living to play the game, uh, it was fascinating. And to be able to talk to Glenn, I think I asked for 15 minutes of his time and he gave me 45 because he was enjoying talking to another goaltender. was it was just truly humbling that he would even speak with me, and he knew who I was. I couldn't believe it, you know. It just shows that he's still following hockey. And then um, a couple of weeks later, I got to talk to Menel Rayom, which was another thrill because, you know, there's a woman who paved the way for so many in the game. Uh, and people from my era, goaltenders from my era, I was born in 1983, you know, even on the guy's side, we all looked up to her. She gave us hope that, hey, we could all get a chance at this. If she can make it. Maybe a kid from St. Louis has that chance. And so she was great to talk with. But, man, if I could get Curtis Joseph on, though, that'd be the ultimate goal. And I'm working at it, but we'll see. You know, there's there's a couple other names out there, but uh, he'd be first and foremost, I think, right now. You mentioned you're from St. Louis, and, man, the stars could not have aligned any better for you where you start writing for NHL.com, you start going on NHL Network, and this is the year that the St. Louis Blues win their first ever Stanley Cup. What was it like to experience that, something that you probably dreamed of as a kid, never quite could see the Blues get to that point, and now to just see how the city responded and to actually live through that? What an experience, and... Uh, I'll preface it by saying that I've kind of lost the fandom that you have as a child of your hometown team, and that's a byproduct of playing 14 years of professional, four years of college, two years of junior. I haven't been a full-time St. Louisan in 20 years, and so when you bang through all these different organizations, you don't have that same commitment and that same uh, level of enthusiasm, but I see all my friends every day completely enamored with this team. They're all talking about it. There's people painting their lawns with blue notes. 
There's signs all around town. Pat Maroon becomes a folk hero. It was amazing to see in this city. Uh, it was something that hadn't happened here yet. They'd never won a Stanley Cup. They'd won World Series in baseball. But I knew that if the Blues pulled off, it was going to be a party like nobody had ever seen, and it was, because that celebration downtown, the parade, uh, estimates are always wild for those things, and they can range anywhere from 300 to 500,000 to a million. You hear all these crazy numbers, but it was bonkers. I mean, people were 30 deep on the sidewalks. <laughs> and uh, it was amazing to go through, and it was it was really cool because I had the opportunity to cover it for NHL.com and write for them and, and have a press uh, card to go downstairs beforehand, watch the morning skate. And it was just really cool to see the inner workings of the media side, especially in such a heightened uh, environment like the Stanley Cup Finals. You hear about cities like Toronto, really hard to play in because everybody's down your throat and they expect the Leafs to win all the time. There are tough media markets like New York. What's kind of the vibe of St. Louis? Did it change at all over the years? Because I feel like with the Cardinals, everybody always looks at that fan base as always being a very respectful one. Did the Blues ever go into a, an up or down scenario at any time? I think perception can kind of be a little bit different than reality sometimes because I've seen some fair-weather fans for the Cardinals in this city. When that team's not doing well, people are they're just absolutely sour. They're in the dumps. And that's if the team's at 500. You know, they expect them to win the, the World Series every year. I think with Blues fans, you know, there was one period where ownership was not good. The team didn't make playoffs uh, eight or nine years ago. They went through a really tough stretch. But other than that, in my lifetime, in my memory of it, the fans have always been really supportive, and part of it's because it's a two-sport town at this point. The Rams are gone. Uh, there's the Blues and the Cardinals, and it is truly a sports city. But people here had almost become, I'm trying to think of the right way to describe it, they were almost just resigned to the fact that the Blues were never going to win. And kind of the rallying cry became, just one before I die. You would hear that so often from people. And... You know, they were just resigned to it. And for them to go on this run that was so improbable in the first place, the team was in last place in January, you can see why the whole city got on board because you could feel the momentum building. And, you know, I just love that even the casual fans all got into it. And to me, there's no bandwagons in sports. There's people that just want to be part of it and have fun and enjoy it. And, you know, if those people never watch another game, so what? But you know what? I bet for all those people who had never watched much before, they picked up a whole lot of fans during this run that are going to be fans for life. Even though the Blues have been around for over 50 years, you are one of only 19 Missouri natives who have reached the NHL. How did you first fall in love with the game, and what do you see as some of the keys to trying to grow the game away from maybe the traditional hotbeds like a St. Louis or like some of the southern markets? Yeah, you're calling it Southern. Is that what you're doing to me right now, DJ? Uh, it's, it's south of us here in Wheeling, so I guess I'll call you Southern a little bit. <laughs> We're Midwestern. Uh, but no, um, I, I didn't know the exact number of Missourians. That's cool. Uh, I knew we were up around 20. And there's a couple in there that weren't people that weren't born uh, in St. Louis or Missouri. And I know that there's a few that were born elsewhere, like Ben Bishop's a good example. It lists him as from Denver, but he's really from St. Louis. But in any case... Hockey's grown tremendously here, and now that we've been putting out players, it's only started to snowball. But you are seeing it throughout the U.S. You're seeing guys come from Arizona, from Texas, from Florida. California is already a proven market at this point. I really think the key to it is making sure that the NHL continues to take their footprint that they already have and embrace it. You know, I think people have gotten sick of seeing those same teams in the Winter Classic. 
the same stadium series, you know? And that's not to take anything away from fans in Boston or Chicago, but people are craving new, new places to go, new things to experience. And when a team comes in and does well in a city like Tampa, I have relatives in Tampa. There are a lot of people playing hockey there now. They're putting out players. It's happened in Dallas when they won the Stanley Cup. It's happened in California. They have to continue to embrace their footprint and don't be exclusionary to those teams when it comes to special events. It may not get the biggest ratings short-term on television, but down the road you're going to grow the base and you're going to have even more fans to draw from. We're getting ready to start season number 28 here in Wheeling, and I was listening to one of your former podcasts with Dan Duva, one of the voices of the Vegas Golden Knights. So I know I'm okay asking you this because you do remember some of it. You played a game here in 2005-2006 with the Las Vegas Wranglers. What do you remember from that trip in here as a visiting player? And I think I heard you say you had some sort of a celebration that night. <laughs> so first off, we're digging into the archives from Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. My first guest, Dan DeUva, the Sicilian soundbite. He is the play-by-play guy for the Vegas Golden Knights, a fantastic guy. We were in Syracuse together with the Crunch and the American Hockey League. And we were recounting a story that we had. We'd played two nights in a row in Toledo, and we were doing a three-and-three. Three. We'd won the first two games. We'd come into Wheeling and couldn't remember the place that we were staying. I still can't remember the name, but it was really old. Uh, the windows probably wouldn't open to a regulation. They probably opened three feet wide. You know, it, it, was, it was kind of a time warp, I guess, is what it felt like in 2005 to us, or six, or whatever this was. Uh, but in any case, we go in and we sweep the weekend. We went three straight, three in a row, and I know that I played Sunday in Wheeling, and we won in a shootout. I can't remember the exact score, but I remember that. And I remember the locker room just smelling like cigarettes just reeking of cigarettes, and we couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And all we could think of was that maybe the smokers area outside the building was right outside our locker room and was being filtered in. Regardless of that, we go out, we win the game, and our owner is just so excited. We went three in a row. We're, we're just we're racking off wins at the start of the season. He's like, take the guys out. We're going to buy them all a round of drinks. Well, we couldn't find anywhere in Wheeling that was open. So we ended up driving. I think we crossed the border into Ohio and found a sports bar on a Sunday night. So as you can imagine, it was us and about a half dozen other people in this place. And Team Bus pulls up, so I can't imagine what they're thinking. And in that type of situation, what do you do? Well, you just have fun with yourselves, and guys were in bad shape the next day rolling out of town to get on the plane because we were flying from Pittsburgh. And the bus is dead silent. It's about 7 in the morning. The sun's just coming up. And my friend, my defenseman, Scott Shenick, sits up in the bus in the back of it out of nowhere and goes, Thanks for the worst time ever, Wheeling. <laughs> and it was just truly because there was nowhere to go on a Sunday night. And the morning after was a tough one for the guys. But uh, it was fun, man. Like, I look back at that. It's one of my favorite memories in all of hockey and, and playing in that building. Um, it was fun, man. It just it was carefree. There was nothing to lose. And there's, there's so many fun memories from the ECHL days. We saw how the Golden Knights took Las Vegas by storm, and with that becoming just the third city that's paved its way to the NHL with Columbus and Nashville also. So you were with Las Vegas when you came here to Wheeling. What was it like to play in Las Vegas? And from that experience, did you know that the Golden Knights would just take off like the Rockets that they have? You know, to be honest, I think I was much more apprehensive about what the Golden Knights were capable of from a fan attendance perspective than a lot of people. 
And the reason being was that Vegas, I knew, was a big enough city to, to support a professional franchise, whether it was hockey, football, basketball, didn't matter. Plenty of people there. What I was concerned with, though, was that it was a completely untapped market in terms of people who had been exposed to hockey. Now, we did really good with the Wranglers. We drew, I believe, an average of north of 5,000 in a building at the Orleans that held, ironically, 7,777 fans, all sevens, goes along with Vegas, right? Of course. Uh, and we also, came, we also came out through a giant slot machine, which was completely <laughs> entertaining. But uh, in any case, we did really well in the ECHL. Uh, but I was concerned that the team would be able to draw at the NHL level. I just I didn't know if it was going to be there. When the season ticket drive happened, it, it seemed like it was a really slow process. They eventually sold them out, but I was just really concerned that it was going to be a flavor of the week thing, and I was also concerned because the assumption was that all the casinos are going to buy tickets to these games, and, and it's going to be packed houses no matter what. And well, what people don't, don't take into account is that there's warring factions of casinos out there. Caesars isn't going to buy tickets to a proper MGM property. It's not going to happen. So that concerned me, too. Well, everything that I thought went out the window. They absolutely knocked it out of the park in the first year. And obviously it helps that they did so well, went to the cup finals, caught lightning in a bottle. But if you listen to the interview I did with Dan Duva, I think a whole lot of it has to do with the tragedy that happened at Mandalay Bay and how the whole city seemed to galvanize and 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 just commit themselves to this hockey team. And they seemed to grieve together, grow together, and people latched onto it, and it was a really positive thing in the city when there had been such a negative earlier. And so I think it helped people uh, kind of come out of the doldrums of such a tragic event and rally around something. You and Dan are part of a long list of folks who have started here in the ECHL, made their way up to the NHL. What do you look at the ECHL as now in comparison to 15 years ago, whether it's the style of play or just the development and being able to move players up the level so quickly? Well, I haven't seen many games since they left, so it's really hard for me to judge just on level of play. Uh, but in terms of the way players move up and down, I think the biggest change that I've seen is that when I first came into the league, 2005, there were an awful lot of guys that would go up to the American Hockey League on PTOs, which are professional tryout uh, agreements. That seems to be going by the wayside now. It seems as though more teams are strictly using their American League affiliate and just using uh, that team for call-ups, and most of those players are already on American League contracts, whether they're American League one-way, American League two-way, or even an NHL contract. And so I think that's the biggest logistic change that I've seen. I also know that there isn't the three-ring circuses going on like we used to see in 2005, but that's also for all the hockey. I mean, you know, they put a fight rule in the, in the American League, 10 fights and you're suspended. I believe the ECHO is following suit this year. And let's be honest, that's a seismic shift. There's an awful lot of people in, the, in some of the markets, especially the older markets that have, that have left the ECHL, they were just going looking for blood. They just wanted to see fights, and, and the, the hockey aspect was, was something of a sideshow. And so in some ways, the ECHL and the American Hockey League have had to rebrand themselves now as a training ground for the NHL where you can come see tomorrow's stars uh, and see players that are going to move up. Um, and so I think that's the biggest change to it. Um, but it seems as though people are embracing it. And, and you know, it's, there's always that changing landscape of where the teams are. They've gone west. They've come back east. It's, it's always in flux, it seems. 
It's good to get your perspective on this, too, as someone who's very active with the Professional Hockey Players Association. You've been on the executive board, and I'm glad you mentioned about the contracts because that was actually something I wanted to ask with Newfoundland, our league champion this year. 15 of their 23 players had either an NHL or an AHL contract. Do you see that as the trend that is going to continue to follow, and ultimately is it the right direction for the league to move that way? I don't see it continuing because there's not many teams that can, quite frankly, just pay people. And I think that's really just a product of Toronto having more money than Davy Crockett, uh, as Forrest Gump once said. Uh, and I just don't see that filtering down through other teams. I mean, it's nice for them that they can stock up with that many players who are obviously that skilled and, and other organizations might be playing in the American Hockey League. But, you know, it's tough for teams to turn a buck, to be honest with you. And that's at the NHL, at the AHL, at the ECHL. You know, there's maybe half the teams in those leagues that are that are even coming close to breaking even. And so it's a very unique scenario with the Toronto Marlies, the Toronto Maple Leafs being able to just flat out pay these guys to play in the ECHL. You know, you're not going to see your smaller market teams being able to do that with their affiliates. And is it the right thing for the league? No, it's not. Uh, but how are you going to prevent that? I just don't see that happening because it's really tough to limit that. If that's their affiliate and they have those guys, they've got to put them somewhere. Maybe they could somehow disperse them, but why even have an affiliate agreement if you're doing that? So I, I think it's an isolated thing. Um, I, I certainly hope that St. John's doesn't run away with the cup every year, even though that is quite a place to win a Kelly Cup. Uh, that is an incredibly fun place to go to. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, I, I think it's just kind of a, a limited scenario given given the funds and the resources that Toronto has. Now that we're into the middle of July, we've kind of gone through that big first swoon of signings on July 1st, which, gosh, it feels like it's a sprint where baseball, you had Harper and Machado waiting all the way until March before signing their contracts. Is there something going on that's leading to July 1st being that real big day where everybody wants to sign rather than wait and maybe play some poker chips and see where things will fall? Well, I can tell you from my own personal experience, I always thought that if I didn't sign July 1st, I was I was taking my career into my own hands. <laughs> there may not be another offer. And so I always thought that the team on July 1st that it came to me uh, was the team that wanted me the most, and I thought I'd get the best opportunity with them. So that drove a lot of the reasons why I signed on those on July 1st. But then again, that's as somebody is the number three goaltender, and it's a lot different than being a superstar. So being able to weigh some of your options, wait a little bit, uh, it's not always a bad thing, but if you really want the big money, it's going to be there the first day. And I think that's the reason is that everybody wants to, first off, make sure they have a seat at the table. You don't want to be left out without one, as we've seen some guys have happened to them. My old boy partner, Robin Leonard, this year is a good example of that. Uh, unfortunately for him, with another one-year deal coming off of an incredible season, you, sometimes you question what people were looking for uh, and may or may not have gotten, but... I think if you don't get that seat at the table on July 1st, you don't know what you're getting into. And like I said earlier, you want to get paid as much as you can and you want to find the perfect scenario. And if you're not really ready to commit to it on July 1st, that team may move on to somebody else. And if you've got your eyes set on a place, and, and it's not just money. If it's the right scenario for your family or for your, your needs as a hockey player, chance to win a cup, things like that, you want to make sure you get, you get that opportunity. And that's kind of what's been the driving force for the, all the July 1st signings. How do you see that with ECHL players, particularly players who maybe they have an ECHL team ready to offer them now, but they're looking towards, hey, maybe I can get one of those last dangling AHL contracts still out there? Man, 10 years ago, I think it was different because you really had to weigh your, 
your options, whether you wanted to just be an ECHL free agent guy or whether you wanted to get an American League contract. And I can remember thinking that my first two years, I was really happy to be ECHL free agent because I could go up and down to teams on PTOs. Whereas by my third season, I thought, you know what, an American League deal wouldn't be a bad thing because maybe it would get me in the door with an organization and give me a chance. And that seems to be the direction things are going, as we talked about earlier, where more people are on those American League contracts. So I, I could have to imagine myself personally as a goalie. I, I would want to get one of those American League contracts as a goalie uh, in the ECHL right there. But it's um, it, it really can be catered to the person, you know. And I think if you're a good enough player in the ECHL, you're never going to have a problem getting a job. And the pay scale really isn't that different as it can be if you're making – NHL money. You know, you can make a million bucks or you can make 10 million bucks in the NHL. In the ECHL, you're going to be making somewhere, if you're a veteran guy, somewhere between six and 900. So there's a swing, but it's not as drastic. Um, so I think guys would probably be more willing to be patient uh, in the ECHL than they necessarily would be at the end. I think I've covered just about everything I wanted to tackle with you today, Mike. I really appreciate you taking a few minutes, heck, more than a few minutes. This is incredible to be able to talk about some of your experiences from a player standpoint, from a media standpoint, being in the ECHL, making your way up to the NHL, family life. We covered so much today, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Hey, it was my pleasure, DJ. I got all the time world for you, man. We go back so far. And uh, I sure hope that we can cross paths in person here shortly. And you keep doing what you're doing because this game is its rewarding to people who work hard and do a good job. And you've been in your position for a while, and you just keep on putting out good content. So keep it up, man. I'm, I'm happy to be part of it. Huge thanks once again to 14-year NHL goaltender Mike McKenna, again a good friend of mine, for spending a lot of time with me today on the Toolbox. I really enjoy talking to Mike because there's so much knowledge that he has, the business of the game, how it all works, and having lived through it and played through it for 14 years, he is a really smart person, and I hope that the NHL takes full advantage of having his knowledge to be on the staff, writing for NHL.com, being an analyst on NHL Network, and please make sure to give his podcast a listen, Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. It's a lot of fun, like I try to do. He tries to go after different areas of the sports business, the hockey business, whether it's former players, current players, coaches, bus drivers, athletic trainers, broadcasters, really does a great job of painting the scope of what we do here on a day-to-day basis, and it's a lot of fun. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, be sure to be on the lookout for some more signings here in the coming weeks. We are under 100 days till the home opener. We're under 75 days until training camp begins the first week of October. So hockey is on the way. Weather is supposed to be really hot this week, so stay cool. And we'll be back before you know it for another edition of the Toolbox. Toolbox.